Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today I'm very excited about our guest today. You know, obviously Startup Nation, incredible founders that are coming from there. Just the discipline, you know, like the mindset is, is really incredible. So we're going to be learning a lot about uh, obviously building and scaling and financing and then going from corporate into startups. I mean, I think that there's a lot to unpack, you know, in the, in the episode that we have today. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Ira Cohen. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, great to be here. So born in Israel, I mean, obviously, the, uh, when we're talking about your upbringings, that definitely entailed moving quite a bit for the first 18 years of your life. So tell us a little bit about growing up. I was born in Tel Aviv, and uh, my, my parents, one is an engineer, my mother is a mathematician. You know, in the early days, uh, we were in the Tel Aviv area, so this is the center of Israel where most people live. Uh, but at some point, they decided to move to the south of Israel, really, really far, kind of a, a place that had a movie on it called uh, End of the World, Turn Left at the End of the World. So it was really a small town. Uh, and that's where I grew up most of the time. Uh, then, but they, they had a bug of moving. So we moved at some point to the U.S. for two years uh, and lived in uh, the L.A. area, which is very different from where I grew up and then came back to Israel, to the desert again, and then moved again to a, a, a greener a greener place. So I had, a, I had encountered a lot of different places, uh, very different environments in my first 18 years. And I mean, I think that that for, for a child, is a, it, 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 I'm sure it was difficult because you had to make relationships from start, you had to deal with uncertainty, and, I, and I'm sure, you know, and, I, and I've seen this, you know, with other entrepreneurs, too, that have had a similar upbringing, that to a certain degree, that shapes up a little bit the way that you are able to deal and uh, analyze uncertainty. Is, did, did that, do you think that played a role in you being able to become an entrepreneur later and how you deal with uncertain situations? Definitely, because, you know, my life was uh, changing so much. Basically, I had to adapt and know how to adapt to very different environments, very different types of friends, uh, very different types of uh, even cultures. And so, uh, so I, I do believe it helped me a lot also see people for 
what they are and not who they are. And that helps a lot also as you move around. So for you, you did the military service, which is obviously mandatory uh, there in, in Israel. And then after that, you did your uh, engineering degree. But then you decide to pack the bags and come to the U.S. Why, why did you decide to do that? So, I don't know, ever, ever since I was a child and we lived in, uh, in, uh, in L.A., I had this uh, dream of going to Caltech. Uh, that was my, uh, a bug that came into my head at some point and uh, never left. So, uh, when I finished my undergrad, I said, okay, now let's, let's, uh, let's get that bug out of my head. Oddly enough, I never applied to Caltech. I actually applied to other universities in the U.S. Uh, and uh, was was lucky to to get accepted to the uh, University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, and that's where I went. Uh, I also wanted to you know change environment. I knew I wanted to get uh, an advanced degree. Uh, I wasn't content with just an engineering degree, and I felt that um, you know changing the atmosphere of where you study. And Israel is too small for a big change. Even though we have multiple universities, the mentality is exactly the same. I wanted to experience a different mentality and a different form of learning, which the U.S. provided. But I think the main reason, if I have to be honest, is that bug that went into my head sometime early on in my life that I should go to a top-notch U.S. university like Caltech. And then after this, after doing your master's, you joined Hewlett-Packard, and, and you did spend quite a, quite a bit of time at Hewlett-Packard. I mean, first here in the U.S., then going back to Israel uh, and building teams. Uh, I guess, you know, like you were, you were before all this craziness around, you know, I guess machine learning and AI. Now everything is AI and machine learning. So when you were, you know, really building those teams and, and, and you were seeing things around you, I guess. I guess first and foremost, what did you learn from working at such a big organization like like HP, like Hewlett Packard, and 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 what what was that experience and seeing those trends around, you know, the 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 incredible growth around the talk and conversations, you know, on machine learning and AI stuff. Yeah, it, it's it was it was quite a ride. Uh, so I. I moved to machine learning. So my, my undergrad was electrical and computer engineering. I worked a lot, a lot on signal processing and image processing. And when I moved to the to UIUC, I thought I would be working on image processing, very, very uh, theoretical. But then I got to the US and started working on problems that in, needed machine learning. And I, it really got me the whole notion of analyzing data in the way that machine learning does uh, with these models. I don't know why, but it resonated with me internally, and I really like the field, and I'd like to apply it to images and videos. So I went into it because I really loved this data analysis, and there was, like you said, there was no market for it. Uh, pretty much no market for it. But you know, you do what you like when you do uh, when you do this uh, PhD, and that's where it took me. Now. As as I started the professional career, both in you know at the beginning at HP Research uh, Labs, we started working on applying machine learning to various uh, domains that HP was involved in, and the reactions were always, "What is this? This is magic. This is pixie dust. This is not real." Even from fellow researchers that you know came out of Berkeley and you know had some inklings about what machine learning is, it always sounded like magic. 
And I always said, no, this is not magic. This is data, uh, data talking. It's taking data and making it talk instead of uh, just data sitting around. Now, as time progressed, when I when I actually went back to Israel, I, I went to uh, uh, to the software division and went to a, to the executive VP there, and I told him, I want to come and form a machine learning team, a team of people that know machine learning, so we can put these capabilities into the product. His question was at the time, what is machine learning? Well, we don't do any educational software for people to learn from. So what does this have to do with me? Uh, that was his answer at the time. Uh, and, and I had to explain that machine learning is not educational software doing software, doing uh, uh, teaching people, but rather exactly what it was. And this was 2009. So it really advanced quickly from there. It was so great to see how things progressed from being very theoretical and being just experiments of universities and only a few select companies doing it really like Google and Amazon and, and, uh, and Microsoft and others to the industry starting first embracing it or trying to understand what is it and then seeing the applications of it. And today it's, uh, you know, it feels like uh, a lifetime ago where I had to explain what is machine learning. Now I have to actually explain most of the time that what machine learning cannot do yet, uh, because people expect it to to be the uh, you know the solution for everything. Absolutely. So in your case, you know, about seven years ago, you decide that it's time really to to pack the bags, you know, and and give your notice. And we're talking about years, you know, at least you know seven, no more, like at least like what. It was like 12 years that you spent at HP. I mean, why after so long giving your notice? What happened? Yeah, so so first, you know, the, the HP experience, because it, uh, it I moved around somewhat, uh, it felt like few jobs. It didn't feel like one job. And this is the, you know, you talked about, you asked about the enterprise. That's the advantage of being in a very large company that you can actually even move within that company and do something completely new uh, and not leave the company, but feel like you're, renewing yourself and, and learning. Uh, I felt that I hit the you know, glass ceiling in terms of what I can uh, provide and what I can learn. So as a researcher, I learned a lot about you know, what does work in terms of industrial research? What can you do as an industrial researcher that will make an impact and what doesn't work? That's one of the reasons why I decided to transfer to uh, the software division because I wanted to be much, much closer to the products themselves to make an impact. Because I felt as a researcher, I could do a lot of great things, but it's super hard to push them into the products. As I moved closer to the products, the, the, you know, there were some successes of trying to pushing things into, into the various products, but I felt like, okay, but... A lot of times I have to add capabilities to an existing product and doing that with machine learning a lot of times hits a lot of barriers. I'll give you an example. Um, I would have endless discussions and arguments with the DBA of one of the products asking him, I need for this feature to work in a machine learning model, I need to query three months worth of data. And you know, he would laugh me off and say, no way, I can't let the product do that, it would crash. And, you know, and then as a, as a machine learning developer or expert, I would have to start 
creating our suboptimal algorithms. So the frustration was, you know, you come in with what you know, but then you have to make a lot of adjustments and a lot of compromises. And at the end, you, you don't get the optimal solution. When building your own company with your own product, you're not limited to that. And actually, we built the product from ground up based on all the experiences that I had from what worked and what didn't work. And, you know, I, I, I always, as a researcher, you actually have that entrepreneurial mindset because you always try to create new things that were not done before, because otherwise, why would you be a researcher? So that came natural to me. It, all it, had, it needed the adjustment of know, creating the business around it, the business framework around all these ideas. And that's a new learning experience, which I'm still enjoying quite a lot. So then let's talk about Anodot. So it's your, your baby. So tell us about the, uh, the band, you know, coming together, you know, the co-founders really, you know, uh, meeting and, and, and then all of you, you know, saying, okay, it's time. Let's, let's give our notice. Let's, let's start this thing. Yeah, so so that's a it's a it's a good story of uh, how we started Anodot. So uh, I got a message at the end of 2013 on LinkedIn, a cold cold message from somebody I didn't know, uh, who's today my uh, the CEO and co-founder, asking me, you know, do do I want to can I meet? So he did a LinkedIn friend request and then uh, uh, let's meet. So we met a few days later over dinner. And he told me his story. At the time, he was a, he's a serial entrepreneur. Uh, he sold the company to Akamai uh, a couple of years earlier, and he was basically looking for his new thing. And he, at, at the time, he was working for uh, an Uber-like competitor that is based in Israel, and just to learn more about uh, other domains other than what he did before. And he realized he has some problems around monitoring. Uh, around getting monitoring to work for for his business, so this is like an Uber app. An Uber app. It's not Uber. It's like an Uber app, and they were monitoring everything in real time, constantly. But they were missing a lot of very costly incidents because even though the data was collected in real time, it wasn't telling a story. Somebody had to look at the data to get the story, to get that something's happening in some city, uh, and people are not able to to register as new new users or not able to uh, to call taxis or taxi drivers are not getting the calls because of all sorts of issues, whether technical or non-technical issues. They were, the data was in real time, but they were finding it two weeks later, a week later, if somebody accidentally looked at the data in some dashboards. So the, their main monitoring capability was dashboards, so eyeballs. And it drove him nuts that they were losing so much money by not hitting those, not finding them immediately as they were happening, even though the data was available immediately. So, I, so in that meeting, I told him, yeah, machine learning is can solve this problem. I know how to solve it. He is an entrepreneur. And then he brought uh, the third co-founder, who's a BPRD in our company. He knew him before. He didn't know me before. We created a, a deck, we created a small demo, started pitching it, and six months later, we actually opened the, the office uh, and started the company officially. Because what is the uh, business model of Anodot for the people that are listening to get it? Yeah, so, so what we do is, is business monitoring, so autonomous business monitoring, so monitoring that is based on machine learning. Uh, and the, the way we work, we're a SaaS company mainly, even though we have an on-premise offering as well. 
And the business model is you monitor your business, you send your data about your monitoring data into our system, our system continuously analyzes it and sends you notifications and alerts uh, about interesting things that happen in the data that could be incidents, that are incidents that you should pay attention to, whether they're your marketing team, your revenue team, your cost team, uh, or your customer experience team, whichever team it is. And the business model is, is based on the volumes of data that you send us. The more things you need to monitor, it means you're bigger, uh, you're a bigger company, the more you pay us. So it's a SaaS, uh, it's a SaaS model in that, in that sense. Got it. And up until now, how much capital have you guys raised today? So we raised uh, uh, around $70 million to date in uh, three rounds. We'll probably raise the next round in, in 2022. The last one was uh, just, we actually closed the thing in uh, end of March 2020. So right as COVID was nice. uh, hitting, that was round C. And... Uh, yeah, so that's that's in terms of the capital funds that we have so far. Very nice. Now the seed round happened very quickly. So how? Why? Why did it happen so quickly? It's always hard to exactly know, but I believe the answer is that you know our CEO, my partner and co-founder, is a serial entrepreneur. I think that makes the whole difference, a whole, whole lot of difference. So we were able to come with, not with paying customers yet not with a product that is fully baked yet, but rather him and me as the expert and, and our and, and third co-founder, Shai, as the uh, you know, head of R&D. So strong team, um, good story, good references. So we talked to potential customers already and you know, got their uh, backings that this is an important problem that you know, this type of solution can be useful for them. Uh, and that was enough for, for the seed round, luckily for us. Uh, and I think it wouldn't have happened if I came alone without uh, you know, the, the history of doing entrepreneur. Of course. So how, how big was the seed round? Uh, it wasn't that, I mean, at the time it looked big to me. Now it looks pretty small. I think it was a million and a half. A million and a half. Got it. And what happened with the Chinese investors? Because you had the opportunity too early on of getting a big chunk of investment from from folks in China and you decided not to not to go that route. Obviously it's tough because as an entrepreneur you're always raising money, so it's hard to say no to money, but it turns out that in the long run it was the right decision to make. So uh tell us about this story a little bit. Yeah, so we, we were in touch with uh with a like you said, a Chinese company that was doing investing. Uh and we had very good relationships with them actually visited them in China and, and felt very good about the people there and the company. You know, there was a lot of back and forth, but it's, at the time, this was about after a year and a half, I believe, that we were uh, in business. So we're starting to think about the next round. And, and you know, they, they were fast in offering, you know, the infusion of cash that we knew the company needed. It was... You know, we had a big dilemma. We started talking to a few other investors at the time, but it wasn't still, it wasn't yet mature. So this was the first one. And, you know, you want to, you want to finish it and move on so you can build the business. But there were already talks, chatter uh, around, you know, the relationships between U.S. and China and whether it will be smart to get in, to be, to get an investment from a Chinese company or not. And, and, you know, we were kind of worried about it. On one hand, you know, these are great people, great company, and, and the fact that they are from China 
you know, we are not, we're not political in any way, but, you know, we don't want to hurt the business. It turns out that we, you know, we, we said no, and the next round actually came pretty quickly. So some of the other uh, investors matured pretty quickly after that. And we saw, you know, just a few months later in one of our biggest deal that we had, that if we took, if we would have taken that investment, we wouldn't be able to get some of the big deals that we got, you know, even six months later, just because there were all these uh, constraints between the U.S. and China. So that's that's the story. Uh, that's the story, kind of in a nutshell, behind it. I still think that uh, you know, I, I I would hope that politics is removed from you know our business and wouldn't have to think about these kind of things but you know this is reality and we have to live by the rules of reality of course now in your case you know it's a it's interesting how even at the beginning you were relentless about getting customers even getting customers in a jacuzzi so where, where is that drive coming from I mean, is it unbelievable it, it was quite incredible because I, mean, I never did sales, right? I was a researcher. I was a developer. I was a very technical person. But as a, as a researcher and somebody who keeps pushing innovation, you always know how to talk about your stuff, right? Because you have to, you have to market it yourself. Nobody can market it for you as a researcher. But that, it was always within the constraints of, of the HP company, uh, a little bit of talks with customers, but I never actually had a lot of interactions with real customers. Uh, but somehow there was a, you know, a flip in my mind. And immediately as we started the company, I started talking about it to anybody, anywhere, right? I was probably maybe obnoxious to some people, but I, you know, it's, it's kind of this drive that pushes you to talk to people. So, you know, one time I was sitting in a jacuzzi in uh, in in, in, the, in the gym that I uh, that I work out with, and you know somebody sits next to me. Immediately I start asking questions, and and actually turns out to be somebody very relevant uh, that had the need, and uh, we were able to get him to get that company uh, just from a conversation in a jacuzzi. And after that conversation, this was in the first six months or so, uh, I, I realized, okay, I better do this all the time. Uh, so I would fly, sit in a bar and talk to people. I would, uh, uh, you know, almost any interaction, I would do that. And one of our biggest deal came out of, you know, meeting an old friend uh, that I haven't met for a few years, sitting uh, on the beach with a beer. And I was actually, in that instance, I wasn't, I wasn't planning on talking about Amadont at all, but uh, the person brought it up a little bit and I started describing it because I thought it wouldn't be relevant to where that person was working. Uh, and uh, and uh, it turned out it was actually very relevant. And um, six months later, we signed our biggest deal, I think, to date uh, with a very, very good I mean, the company is a very large social network company that's, you know, extremely valuable to to us. Nice. Now, how does the life of a fish relate to the health of the company? Right. So, so I'm I'm my title is the chief data scientist, but also the VP Fish Care, which I put on my LinkedIn uh, title. Uh, it turned out it had a, another benefit. I'll tell you at the end, but. What happened is uh, uh, on the first week when we started the company, my son, my younger son, uh, got a gift from one of his classmates, a birthday gift, a fish, a small fish. I never had a fish. We never had a fish. And I didn't want to have a fish in the house. 
So I decided to bring the fish to the office and put it in the office and see what happens. And then we started creating a whole narrative around the fish uh, about how this fish is our lucky charm and how the fish uh, supports the engineering systems and makes if the fish is not healthy the engineering systems are not healthy so it's like if you monitor the fish you know what's going on with that um, the fish died several times um, uh, it went through multiple iterations today we have 10 fish in a large aquarium we have a camera uh, that is attached to the aquarium that's tracking the fish uh, it, the tracking, uh, these, these are monitoring, this is monitoring. So it goes to the Anodot system. We created a special account for, we call it the Anofish account. Uh, and we discover, and we get alerted if the fish are not, uh, are not moving as they did before or moving more than they did before. Uh, and yeah, we have a lot of, uh, sympathy for the fish. <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. I mean, the it's just amazing you know like the the level of detail and how you guys is just relentless on everything you know whether it's the customers the fish i mean i love it now in terms of the vision and the mission imagine you were to to sleep tonight you know with all your co-founders and and you all you know wake up you know let's say five years from now in a world where the vision and the mission of anodot is fully realized what does that world look like I'll say it from the perspective of our of, of, of our customers, not from our perspective. So if uh, so, in terms of the product, when we complete the vision of the product, let's say it's completed five five years from now, basically they would have a monitoring system that also fixes all problems by itself. So it's a completely autonomous, uh, self healing environment that monitors their business and you know. If it recognizes that, oh, now there is an issue of people, let's say I'm a gaming company, an issue of ads not being displayed in a game because of some problem with, let's say, uh, interfaces with Facebook, it will detect it and will fix it and deploy the fix or uh, does the remediation. And nobody in that company would even know that it happened or need to know that it happened. So having a system that completely automates everything around monitoring, uh, similar to what happens in a lot of other environments that are not, uh, you know, tr more traditional environments like uh, you know, some factories are systems that fix themselves or perform remediation by themselves. So do it for the enterprise, for the digital world as well. Got it. Now, imagine I put you into a time machine. And I'm able to bring you back seven years, you know, before the time that is now where you're able to sit yourself and your other two co-founders down, your younger selves. And based on what you've experienced and all the lessons learned and everything, you're able to share with them one piece of advice before going at it with this business. What would that be and why? The advice would be focus and focus on the use cases that we actually solve for today. Uh, when we started, we, we, we built a capability. We built a platform with a generic capability. And, you know, the directions that we tried to sell it into in the beginning were all over, A, all over the place. So lack of focus. And the reason they were all over the place, because this is a new capability that we had to bring to the market. We didn't know where it will stick in terms of well, it will bring the most value and resonate the most with the potential, uh, you know, with, with the companies that we were going after. 
So I would, you know, I would tell them focus and focus on these use cases and don't think about anything else. Don't bother. I think we wasted a lot of cycles and time. We're not wasted. We spent a lot of cycles and time to hone in on the right things to set the right people and the right companies and the right use cases to sell for. And again, this is because we weren't coming at it from a very narrow focus of solving and a very narrow problem, but rather a much wider problem, building a capability that can solve a lot of different problems. Now, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? So definitely LinkedIn. Uh, I can give my mail as well uh, in audio. So ira at anodot.com. So that's A-N-O-D-O-T.com. And uh, if you want to get to the company, not specifically to me, then uh, our website, uh, anodot.com, there is, uh, I think things pop up there all the time to ask you to fill in your details. So if somebody fills in their details, they'll get a response really quickly. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you very much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.